The reading today is from Galatians 1, verses 6 to 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen and may God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Father God, help me to worship you through what I'm about to say. I pray that you will accept these small things as a token of our worship to you. Help me fix my conscience on your holiness as I come to your word for the second time. Help me nourish your truth and open my heart to your purpose so that I can ascribe glory to you alone. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your presence, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. It would be helpful for you to have your Bibles open again at Galatians chapter 1. Last week we spent a while together looking at Paul's introduction to the Galatian churches and what was significant about him and about the letter that was going to follow. In brief summary we heard that the letter was from around AD 49, making it one of the earliest, if not the earliest, letter that Paul ever wrote. We heard how he had to reinforce his apostolic authority, because the Galatians had been for quite some time questioning his doctrine. We also looked carefully at the clear presentation of the doctrines of atonement, when Paul talked in verse 4 about this Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So this is our second day in Galatia. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the cities are bustling with people. The churches are full and they're overflowing with something suspicious. It will be at the door of one of the Galatian churches I want to take you to today. Together we'll stand and we'll peer in on a service. And we'll watch how Paul's head falls into his hands as he sees the kind of perversions that start to infiltrate the churches there. So imagine this. You're in Iconium, or maybe Lystra, or maybe you're even in the famous city of Antioch. And you're walking alongside the road with the Apostle Paul. And suddenly a man rushes up to you with pressing news. He seems alert and flustered. And he needs to grab the Apostle's attention. Now, you know already from what Paul has been saying to you that he's clearly not impressed with the Galatian churches. And I think we can further reinforce this by visiting some of his other letters briefly to see how he approached some of the other churches that he visited. If you look at Ephesians 1 verse 1, he calls to the saints who are in Ephesus. Or if you look at 1 Corinthians 1 
verse 2, it'd be worthwhile looking at it. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because both their Lord and ours. So you know he's not impressed. And here he is with you, just receiving the news that some in the church are abandoning a gospel of grace, which it is, for a gospel of works. And he's astonished, that word astonished, at how quickly they've done it, how quickly they've reverted. To fully understand the impact of this, before we go on and examine these verses, I do want you to think about a time when you've took up something new. Think clearly about it for a moment. Because I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the Galatians. Because they saw the gospel right at the start as something new and exciting. A new hobby maybe. A new thing to do. So maybe you've signed up for a gym membership in 2017. Maybe that was your New Year's resolution. Maybe you're going to take a class this year. Or maybe you're going to be in the midst of a journey into ministry. Who knows? We can be under no illusion that the human condition will infiltrate plans and allow them to be skewed and changed and redefined to suit an intended purpose. More so, when you're a child of God, it's not just the human condition you've got to worry about. It's Satan, isn't it? He loves to get in the way of God's work. God's work in the world and God's work in you. Look at 1 Peter 3.8, for example. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He'll do anything to catch you out. But anyway, back in Galatia, on the street beside Paul, he's heard this news. There are some, we assume, Jewish Christians who have begun to preach the gospel of works. What I mean by that is the churches in Galatia would not have been made up of primarily Jewish converts to Christianity. But there does seem to be, within the context of this letter, a Jewish presence, a Jewish presence, sorry, taking the Galatian Gentiles into some sort of mosaic law. That's evident from other areas in the letter that we'll look at in the coming weeks. And also you'll find it if you follow Paul's missions in the gospel and in, in, you know the gospel accounts and acts, which we looked at briefly last week. The passage we read has a few clear underlying truths. But I think there's an overriding truth of this passage and actually this book. And that overriding passage acts like a shelter over the underlying truth that we're going to discuss. That there is only one gospel. That's the overriding truth in the book of Galatians. There is only one gospel. So with that being the overriding truth, I wanted to explore the three critical underlying points. So the first thing to look at is that it is totally astonishing to Paul 
or to anyone to even think about another gospel after hearing the original. The second thing that I think comes through as an important factor in this passage is that there is a condemnation for that very act. And lastly, when you accept the gospel, it's important to understand who you're seeking to please through the gospel. Now, you'll notice the opening part to these verses is somewhat different to what you'll see in any other letter Paul writes to the Christian church. At this point in the letter, he normally has something like a thanksgiving for his readers or an expression of pleasure at their progress in faith. I'm just looking at 1 Corinthians right now in my Bible. Let me demonstrate that to you. Verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4 in 1 Corinthians. I always thank you, God. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. If you look at 2 Corinthians, which was the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. If you look at, um, let's find Philippians, for example. Philippians 1 verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. So this is the one letter which lacks such an opening. He's not softening the blow here or taking any of the heat off how he feels. The word astonishing is a newer translation. But in other versions of the Bible, you might find something like or something that's a bit similar to being shocked or marvelling at something or something along those lines anyway. The idea is that you're expected to be reeling in the same way as Paul is. You're expected to be just as astonished. That's why he starts the passage with that. He can't wait to denunciate those who are trying to cause the Galatians to depart from the heart of the gospel. Paul is astonished because the power of the gospel that he told them, namely the sacrifice, resurrection of Jesus, who died for the sins of men to open up the path to God for everyone, verse 2, has been abandoned. How can you get better than that? How is there any news in the whole world that is better than that? For God to do what he did in Christ is absolutely a central of central importance, sorry, for Paul. The cross meant that the death of the Saviour brought life to all who put their trust in him. And anything that obscures this should be vigorously opposed and is deeply troubling him, that is Paul, that this was the very truth that the Galatian Christians seem to be obscuring. You see, the gospel is not like a new gym membership or a healthy new eating regime. It doesn't get washed away for something newer or something better. There's no new routine and there's no video that can replace the gospel. In verse 6, Paul talks about how they've turned to a new gospel. And then you'll see very quickly that he sort of backtracks on that. 
In other words, he doesn't even feel it's justified to call what they're doing a gospel. Let me just read that to you again so you can get the full weight of what I mean. When Paul says that there's a gospel or they're calling a gospel a gospel, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He's so focused on explaining that there isn't actually anything worthy of being called a gospel other than the actual gospel. There is only one gospel. For us today in our lives, this actually has quite significant implications. This universal salvation or pluralistic society is a growing and popular way of thinking these days. And it's used to attempt to curb religious bigotry and radical behaviour apparently. It seeks to suggest that God can be accessed in any way available. That there is plenty of routes to God. It's like a pick and mix. You can take your pick and you can have your choice. Friends, this kind of a lie is just that. A lie. The gospel is not open for reinterpretation. In fact, it's not open to be changed one bit. Revelations, you remember, says, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. The modern world produces new gospels and new religions like products placed on shelves and people follow and buy into them and go along with whatever feels good. Right now you're having the Quran read in Christian churches and you're having churches that avoid opening the Bible to even speak the gospel in case they offend anyone in the congregation. You have churches who introduce other religious practices into their services in the hope of encompassing an interfaith community. Not too far away from your doorstep. And like in Galatia, it was an in-house distortion by men who promoted themselves as Christian brothers. And brothers and sisters, that's happening today still. In our denomination, in our church, that's still happening. In Acts 20, 30, when speaking of the elders of Ephesus, Paul says to them, From among your own selves will arise men speaking distorted things about like a roaring lion. Sorry, I'll read that again. <laughs> For among you, your own selves will arise men speaking distorted things to draw away the disciples after them. Brothers and sisters, that's why this message is right for us. Just as it was in AD 49. Take note, the devil sneaks about like a roaring lion waiting to devour. Take note. Take note of these two facts. There is no other road to heaven except in Christ Jesus. And to be a strong and faith-focused gospel-preaching church, you need to pay attention to doctrine. Being mature in the biblical doctrines isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. There's a heavy price to pay for turning to the true gospel, for turning from the true gospel, sorry. In verse 8, 
and 9, Paul writes, But if we, or even an angel from heaven, should preach to you the gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Paul is introducing something far removed from just simple preaching. His we is emphatic. It's about the whole list of preachers with him, the apostles and the apostles and the disciples included. On top of that, he talks about even the angels, the highest authoritative preachers possible in God's realms, other than God himself, and they would even not be exempt from punishment for changing the gospel in any way, shape or form. This is serious stuff. This isn't candy floss gospels. There's no sugary smiles here with Paul. This is cold hard punishment for obscuring any, any one of Christ's truths. When I was researching this sermon, I came across a quote relating to Paul's preaching, which I think gets across what we're trying to say here. The gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because of Paul and because he preached it. It's the true gospel because it was given to Paul by the Lord Jesus so that he could preach it. The gospel authorship and authority remains with Christ regardless of the preacher. For you and me and for your church and my church, these verses can't be skipped over. They take a lot of soul searching. The Bible doesn't reveal God's curses to us so that we can yawn and turn the page. His wrath is revealed so that we're shaken out of our numbness. If you take one thing away from this sermon today, it's these verses. Don't change the gospel in your day-to-day conversations to suit the situation you're in or to make, it, to make it more comfortable. Don't preach a gospel which doesn't reflect the message Christ gave to the apostles. It's his gospel. Seriously ponder things like this in the quietness. I'd urge you to take genuinely urge you to take at least 10 to 15 minutes break after this sermon just to think about that alone. How do you justify your use of the gospel every day? Are you hiding behind something else? Are you hiding behind a fake gospel? A false gospel? A gospel that's more comfortable? Why? Spend time pondering that. That's important for me too. As I go into ministry, I'm thinking, what gospel do I know? What are the facts of the gospel that I'm clear in my mind? And friends, this is the gospel we have to live by. Now, I want to briefly explore the last of the important themes from these verses. Paul, when writing to Galatia, knew that there were men saying things contrary to what he taught the churches there when he founded them. We've already established that. We know that it was happening. We know that it was actively going on. And we know that Paul was accused of being a time-served disciple, the last of many, the one who persecuted the church. But he was in the business of persuading people. But the interesting thing is that he is, the interesting thing, sorry, that he is absolutely clear with, just like verse one, sent not by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, is that he's here to do the job of God. 
as ministers are here to do the job of God. In other words, a true servant of the gospel seeks to please only God. A true servant of the gospel does not create divisions, does not create animosity or stumbling blocks for others. They please only God. There is nothing else for a gospel-believing Christian that says it is more important than the importance of pleasing God. I'll say that again. There is nothing else for the gospel-believing Christian than the importance of pleasing God. John Piper says that one of the slogans of his ministry are that we are most satisfied in God when he is most glorified in us. And I just love that because if we were seeking in every way to please God and live by what he tells us in the gospel and what that gospel means for us, then we would be totally satisfied by him. And friends, brothers and sisters listening, hearing this, that's why you keep in touch with God every day. That's why you pray. You put your hopes at the foot of the cross because of the gospel. You know that the plans he has for you have already been preordained because of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so valuable. Am I trying to please men, Paul says? Kind of rhetorical, I suppose. Like he's calling out their behaviours. He goes on to assert that you can't please God and please man too. This is only my second sermon. And I've not even properly started the period of discernment. But I have learned more in looking at these verses, these last ten verses in the last two weeks than I probably could have anticipated. And I really truly hope that you have as well. In fact, it's my prayer that you have. Heavenly Father, I just pray at this point, we're not even finished, that the people listening to this hears and understands the importance and value of the gospel. The value and the and the cost of the gospel to you, Lord. That you were so humble and so loving of us that you came to dwell among us and give us this news, this great news of your son, Jesus Christ, so that we may be with you for eternity. Oh Lord, help us continue to understand that in Jesus' name. When the gospel of Christ is distorted and changed and added to, it takes away the essence of the gospel itself. Brothers and sisters, never allow that. Never allow anyone to take away the gospel from you. Examine the gospel you first heard and stand by it. What is that gospel to you? Would you put your life on it? We need to examine some text to understand exactly what it is, I think. And I'm, com I'm going completely out of context here, but bear with me. If we look at the angel's announcement in Luke 2, chapter, ch sorry, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born, the born in this city the Dave of David a saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I will also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thessalonians 5, 9, 10, keep up with me. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Romans 5, 6, 5, verses 6 to 8 one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us then Peter adds his witness 1 Peter 2 24 he himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. The gospel is not Paul's. The gospel's not Peter's. The gospel's not yours. The gospel's not mine. The gospel belongs to a God who loves you, who cares for you, and wants you to spend eternity with him. And in the past and currently, he is using apostles and disciples and followers and congregations and ministers to pass it on. It's interesting, I was reading an article on Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, and how he came to know the gospel. And I'm going to quote you from his biography, because I think it's really, really interesting how he highlights how he came to faith in Jesus through the gospel. And I'm sure that when I read this to you, you'll feel some similarities with your own journey to Christ. Spurgeon says, One week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. And he's a Christian right now, by the way, when he says this. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you become someone who seeks the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself how I came about praying. I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures, he says. I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so that whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day and I desire it to make my constant profession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Friends, that's the gospel. That you have received it not because you wanted to but because God gave you it. And Paul, as we've learned tonight, is astonished that there are some people who turn from it when they've heard it. You can't go back. If the world offers you everything, be like Jesus and turn your back on it. You have this very precious thing purchased at a very great cost. In receiving the gospel, you cost God his one and only son. It pained him. It pained him to have 
all of your sins and my sins fall on his son on the cross. It totally hurt him to the core. This is the gospel that can't be changed and can't be added to. To lose it, to give it away and to distort it is astonishing indeed. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us hearing your word. Thank you for the revelation of the gospel to your people. Hold in our hearts how astonishing it is that you gave your son for us so that you could get you could have us in your arms, O oh God, wonderful counsellor and Prince of Peace. Thank you for this good news and help us go from our comfortable places and tell others about your amazing gift, your amazing love, in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>